If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ranger Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Wolerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Now, who wants a new Prime Minister for Christmas? Easy, easy, settle down, please. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what is going on? Uh, the, uh, the the liberals, as they just continue, and there's new polling out today by Nick Nanos. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Where, you know, obviously the prime minister just continues to tumble through the basement and into the floorboards and in crawl space wine cellar i'm thinking now um and so uh they finally announced the, uh, they can they talked about uh farmer care coming and such but they finally got some uh start on their uh, dental plan and that opens up for seniors first and then we'll continue on a graduated uh, process much like when you get a vaccination sort of thing and uh, so, the you know, there's a lot of bowing going on uh, around Jugmeet Singh and uh, getting this through. However, you know, over the years, we've talked to many of the dental associations, whether it's the federal, the national or the provincial. And they say that in many situations, in most situations, the services are already there. They're just underfunded. So, of course, any dental so- association, and we'll talk to them today, are going to say anything that gets a kid into it or, a, uh, you know, a senior into a dentist chair is obviously a good thing. But is this the best way to do it considering where we are? And again, are we duplicating uh, another version of the crumbling healthcare system, right? I mean, it's, you know, we're, we, we vowed to fix that, yet we're still hearing about tremendous uh, uh, shortages and, and shortcomings there. Are we building a same, the same type of system, which, again, is either underfunded or will be a challenge or is just not the best way to go about doing it? So, uh, But when all you can say for an argument is, well, you know, all these people that are going to get, well, you know, if you funded any program, uh, all of those people would get what they need. So uh, is this going to, at the end of the day, get more people into a dentist chair? And is it going to be the most effective and, and efficient way to do that is really the question that's being asked. Of course, everybody wants everybody to be looked after. I mean, that just goes without saying. We're human beings. But there's better ways than others to do things. And uh, if you question something that somebody's doing, it's like you're a denier. No, it's just, is this the best way to do it? We're going to ask some of those questions uh, coming up a little later on today as we get uh, more into this. Also, what else we got? Oh, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House has apologized again, Greg Fergus. Remember when all this came up uh, last week, he was actually in Washington doing a little hobnobbing down there. Uh, he said um, it's uh, very clear in hindsight uh, how wrong what he did with uh, posing for the picture in his in his garb and in his office and such, uh, but obviously is not going to step down uh, uh, at this point. We'll see where that goes. Uh, that's uh, coming in today, which was something we were talking about last week, but you might remember he was in Washington when that was going on. Uh, the Golden Globe uh, nominations have been announced, so if you're into that sort of thing. And uh, we talked about this last week, but uh, it seems that uh, towards... The middle or the end of this week, there's going to be an announcement in regard to 
uh, Ontario uh, beer stores and such. And, uh, you know, I think this is less about the beer store and more about just opening it up to other outlets. And then the beer store to sit, you know, I guess is up to them to decide what their business model is going to be uh, moving forward. So it looks like that is uh, finally happening. And it's bizarre. You know, you travel anywhere whether it's down into the United States or to Europe or what have you, like this just isn't even an issue yet. It's, it's been a debate in this province for, you know, my goodness, how many years? And, uh, you know, it gets to the point where uh, by the time these decisions are made, it's like uh, it's either just so dang obvious or, or nobody just cares about it because it becomes irrelevant. So we'll see where that goes and uh, what the announcement is at the end of the week but uh, or towards the end of the week. But it certainly looks like uh, uh, more uh, locations, opportunity, whether it's corner stores or what have you. Now, uh, LCBO, where are they on the docket? Apparently not even in sight. And many are wondering when that discussion is going to be had. But uh, I guess it's one step at a time. All right. Uh, it was just uh, a week or so ago that we did uh, the lighting. The, we had the lighting of the CHML Christmas tree uh, down at Gore Park. And, of course, that kicks off the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign and such. And we're talking to a lot of the organizations that benefit when you help us help the kids at 900CHML.com with the CHML Children's Fund, the Good Shepherd, uh, one of those. And, you know, we've been hearing this, whether it's Good Shepherd or any of the food banks or uh, or services that, that help out like them, there is an uptick in traffic. And usually that happens this time of the year anyway but it's just the situation with affordability and the way that it has been in a post-pandemic world. Uh, the demand, as unfortunately we see, we say every year, but even more so this year, is even greater. Let's bring in Mike Truscott, uh, director of the Good Shepherd Venture Center, home to their emergency food program and here now. Mike, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. So, Mike, I want to ask you two sort of two different areas here uh, of questioning. The first one is obviously, and, and you know, you know, maybe, maybe we'll save that one to the end. But the first one is obviously, how can you help? What can we do? How can we uh, help all of these organizations get through this difficult time? But maybe to start with, it's um, how do we get help? If we need it, how do we decide, especially because we hear so much of, of, of what your organizations are saying is that we're getting new people. We're getting people you wouldn't even expect. They're students, they're this, they're that, they're the other. So how do people get help and how do they decide whether, you know, they need it? Because some may see, say, you know, there's someone worse than me. Well, there's many organizations and agencies doing the good work in our community. And uh, it's really important um, that we share and we communicate out to the community. Um, I think it's really important that people also kind of take inventory of what is available in the community. And, and for the Good Shepherd, I can only say that if you come on to our website, you can pretty much navigate to what your needs are. So in terms of the food bank, though, we absolutely see a huge demand, uh, especially in the last year. Um, I can draw some comparisons to last year in 2022. Um, total individuals served were up 27%. Uh, new households registering for the food bank is up 84% at the same time uh, compared to last year. So um, there's tons of demand, and we're doing our best to meet those needs. And um, we're also trying really hard to break down some of the barriers for that too. So. 
And, you know, another common uh, uh, issue uh, as we were talking about the, the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and the, and the Children's Fund was this crosses all demographics. It's every age. It's, uh, it's every uh, uh, line of society. And, and I remember one person saying, it's your neighbors. It's people who will live down the street and you don't even know. Absolutely, Scott. Um, well, one, the rental prices is really high. Housing market and the interest rates, we all know that. And even the cost of utilities, too. And salaries, you know what? They're not keeping up with the cost of living. And, and yeah. with the inflation and the cost of food, um, it's, it's been really hard. So we do see a, a diverse, uh, different socioeconomic circumstances coming to our doors, different ethnic backgrounds, um, refugees, international students, um, people from encampments. And, um, you know, basically, you know, a single parent with a a decent job making even $60,000 a year might be struggling to make ends meet. And, um, yeah, and last year, um, probably in November of last year, I believe, um, Canada Food Bank um, removed the means testing, uh, which was a formula basically where uh, an individual family was determined if they were eligible for food banks. But that has been removed, and um, that helps, I think, in many ways. Uh, and also, Mike, you know, when we talk about this every year, um, and, and usually there's increases, and, you know, they may not certainly be as, as great as what we're seeing, but we, you know, it seems every year the need and, and such is more. How do you think what we're going through now is going to affect the next couple of years? Do you think this is the new norm or do you think, no, we're just in a really tough time here? And like many tough times, um, you know, uh, eventually, uh, you know, good times come around again. Or, or do you think this is a trend? You know, it's hard to say. I hope it's a trend. Um, however, you know, if, if things remain the same, um, it, it could be long lasting. And um, we're looking forward and forecasting that it could be long lasting. So, you know, we, we kind of keep engaged with our corporate donors and, and communicate with them. And um, we're hoping that donations kind of keep up with the trend um, of Many people and are. and what's and what's the best way for 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 us all to all help? I think being connected with your community, being engaged, and I think this is an opportunity. Just this quick conversation is every time we have a chance to shed light on what the community needs is an opportunity for the community to step up. And every day we see people coming and donating food and donating clothing and every little bit helps. So it's, you know, if, if people can keep that the back of their mind, um, let's help our community, right? Any idea, Mike, how much the demand is greater this year? Uh, yeah, in terms of new households, um, just registering new households, we're up 84% in that regard. Um, oh we, we've, we've served in the food bank over 83,000 people that, that we've touched through that process this year so far. 
Mike Troscott with us, director of the Good Shepherd Venture Center, home to their emergency food program. And just a reminder, uh, this time of the year especially, uh, remember those. And it, it's more than you think. It, it's it's amazing how it has crossed all lines uh, this year just with uh, with affordability and where we are. So remember that uh, at this time of the year, the food banks all need your help. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, lots of chatter uh, in and around our healthcare system, especially in a post-pandemic world. And oddly enough, uh, talking about a dental care plan uh, today, and it's been brought forward uh, as a result of the merger of the NDP and the Liberals on this. So um, many are applauding that this sort of thing is happening, but are we following the same path as we do with health care? Uh, now we're going to direct it strictly on health care. New data from the Fraser Institute shows the state of wait times for health care across Canada. And, you know, it's fascinating to see uh, where everybody is. And it really depends on the population, it appears, of your province. Ontario and Quebec, uh, well, Ontario, the average wait time, 21 weeks. Quebec, up to 27 BC around the same uh, as you get out west, uh, Alberta and such, Saskatchewan, 31, 33 uh, weeks. And then it just takes off when you go out to the Atlantic provinces uh, with PEI in at 55 weeks, New Brunswick, 52, 56 for Nova Scotia. Uh, and the average right now sitting around uh, 27. So obviously with Ontario at 21 weeks, Quebec at 27, uh, it, it appears population obviously equals cash. And that's uh, some of the situation we have. Mackenzie Moore is with us, policy analyst at the Fraser Institute and here now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So, Mackenzie, this just appears, or is it? I don't know. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but the more people, uh, the more amount of money, the better health care they have. Well, Scott, as, as uh, you've so nicely laid out uh, before we got on, uh, we do do this study every single year in measuring wait times. And uh, the what we can say is this year is the longest that uh, we've measured for the national wait time and, in fact, the longest for Ontario, with Ontario being at 21.6 weeks and the full country being at 27.7. Uh, post-pandemic world, we thought we were going to change all this. The light went off. We all had a, an epiphany. We're all rowing in the same direction. Has there been gain? There's certainly been uh, lengthening wait times since the pandemic. Uh, we've seen in 2019, the national average was 20.9 weeks, and this has actually gone up to 27.7. For Ontario, we see something quite similar with the net, with the average in Ontario being 16 weeks and coming up to 21.6 weeks. So we've absolutely seen an increase over the course of the pandemic, uh, and even coming out through the end of it, we're seeing uh, increases uh, nonetheless. Uh, especially uh, in the eastern part of the country, Atlantic, Canada, and such, is it just a lack of, uh, of facilities, a lack of, uh, you know, too much demand on the facilities? It's hard to say. I mean, the, the study uh, strictly looks at what physicians are telling us uh, on mm-hmm. in terms of these wait times. So what we're seeing with places like Nova Scotia, for example, is uh, the longest this, this year at 56.7, places like uh, Prince Edward Island at 55.2, and New Brunswick at 52.6 weeks. We're seeing an absolute increase, and uh, it's definitely um, much longer than the rest of the country. 
Uh, we've talked, and, and this is uh, obviously nothing to do with this specific uh, study and such, but obviously we're talking about dental care, just making the news today as we move forward with this. Um, are you concerned that we're not looking at this and, and changing the template and, 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 and at least identifying what's going on and then trying to address it in some way? Because it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Well, it can be very challenging to address. Um, the study that we're t- discussing today it doesn't actually take a look at dental care wait times. It's mostly medically right. medically necessary care. But I guess my point there, my 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 point there is, Mackenzie, is that you know many have talked about how our our, our public health care system has got some very weak uh, weak links in it. Uh, are we going down the same path? Do you think with with dental care? I know you haven't covered it and such, but it seems like we're following the same sort of template. Uh, and is that going to lead us with the dental care, the same place that we are at with health care, which does not appear to be getting better? Uh, not familiar with dental care wait times, uh, familiar with uh, the wait times that we measure for, for this particular study. So I, I couldn't comment. All right. So what does this tell you, Mackenzie? Well, uh, that wait times have been increasing, uh, and in particular since the, the end of uh, the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, we, we're continuing to see more and more Canadians wait. Um, so in particular in Ontario, we see uh, over 300,000 uh, procedures on the backlog that we estimate for Ontarians, with a total of 1.2 million procedures uh, being waited for across the country. And what about actually getting in to see, uh, uh, you know, just a general practitioner as opposed to actually waiting for a surgery of some sort? Well, this, the study that uh, the study actually measures the time it takes to see a specialist after seeing a, a general practitioner. So, for example, mm-hmm. in Ontario, the time it would take to, to see a, a specialist on average was 13.1 weeks, uh, and then seeing a specialist was the average was 8.5 weeks. So, um, the the time the, the study does not measure the time it takes to see a general practitioner in the province. So uh, what are you learning as far as, it, again, does it come back to population, I guess? The bigger the province, the better your chances are for health care. We have seen a population increase, but it is across the board. All provinces are having a tough time uh, right. making sure that their wait times are, are within what's, uh, what's considered reasonable within the study. Uh, this year, the, the wait time between seeing a specialist and receiving care was, was 8.5 weeks, whereas the actual wait time across the country was 13.1. So we're seeing... Uh, so uh, several week difference between the two. What about uh, depending upon what you're getting, what you're what you're waiting for? Well, in terms of the specialties, for example, in Ontario, uh, we see that can, uh, Ontarians are waiting the longest for uh, procedures that uh, fall under neurosurgery. So the total wait for to receive a neurosurgical procedure was fifty five point nine weeks, and Ontarians could also wait about thirty point three weeks for uh, surgery on the ears, nose, and throat. So we are seeing uh, long wait times for specific specialties, but we're also seeing shorter ones for other very important areas as well, such as um, radiation oncology for cancer, so at 4.3 weeks, and a 4.2 week for, for chemotherapy. And are we seeing a mirror, like as we start to look at, you know, depending upon what the, uh, you know, what the illness is, what the treatment is, are the trends pretty much follow with the trends you just, we were talking about earlier about province to province and such that, uh, you know, whatever we're seeing as far as their ability to get the care, it's the same thing, you know, as far as what different types of surgery they're getting, or are you seeing, um, for example, in Atlantic Canada, they have a harder time with certain, certain, uh, procedures. 
I can say is, for example, with urology procedures, we saw a significant increase this year of 11.9 weeks. And we also saw a pretty significant increase for, again, surgeries on the ears, nose, and throat uh, with an increase of 6.5 weeks this year. All right, Mackenzie Moore with us, policy analyst at the Fraser Institute and talking about the wait times uh, right the way across the country and how they compare. Mackenzie, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right, this is, uh, first it was odd that we're hearing that there were so many um, lobbyists for the oil and gas industry at the COP28 uh, conferences, uh, which I believe are still on until tomorrow. Um, and, and the Premier of Alberta was there. Now the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, says his province, uh, his province is home to sustainable oil and has put out a call to bring more attention to it. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and thanks for having me, Scott. What's uh, Premier Moe doing here and put out a call to bring more attention to it? What does that mean? What's he doing? Well, I think he's really saying, hey, look, Saskatchewan has been a global leader in uh, sequestration, or in other words, uh, being able to take and remove uh, carbon from production uh, of oil and uh, put it in the ground. Uh, the Boundary Dam uh, project uh, has been around almost a decade, really up and running over the past four or five. And so they're basically saying, hey, if your concern is with Canadian oil, particularly oil from Saskatchewan, well, guess what? Almost all of it uh, can be done without uh, any carbon emissions. Therefore, we have sustainable oil. Uh, next, you know, a kind of thing where uh, I guess they've just had enough. Sorry, that's the dog doing something in the background here as usual. But what's happened here, I think, is that there's been a, a wide recognition that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the industry and maybe the provinces in particular have not done a very good job at telling people a good story. If the story is about, you know, carbon emissions and that's our big concern. Mm-hmm. Well, the last thing you should be doing is worrying about, uh, you know, Canadian oil, particularly oil from Saskatchewan, since they already have uh, the ability to sequester, uh, as it were, carbon from oil, and everyone should just go on and uh, be very happy. No other country in the world is really doing this to the extent that Canada is. So who is he telling or selling this message to, Canadians or other potential customers? Well, I think maybe it's that the political leaders have finally realized that – it's not the oil companies that are going to stand up and defend themselves. They don't care. If you put a burden on them, you, as we have tried to do now for a third carbon tax in Canada, and let me be very clear about that point, which even Gibo likes to announce, uh, along with Trudeau in international conferences, rather than announcing it here in Canada, is tantamount to a third carbon tax. The cap on emissions drop at 38%. Uh, using these technologies sounds great, but those technologies are expensive. They may be too ambitious, and ultimately the cost of a barrel of Canadian oil will rise where no one else in the, world, in the rest of the world is doing this and has no intentions to do it anytime soon. So what I think this is really about is uh, politicians like Daniel Smith, politicians like Scott Moe saying, if the industry won't stand up and give, out, give our side of the story, then we're going to go to the lion's den and we're going to tell the environmentalists and the climate hears, uh, this is what we're doing. And uh, like it or not, uh, the world can't be without us anytime soon, and uh, you might as well go our route because uh, at least we're trying. I like the rest of you. We're nothing more than a, uh, you know, a, a gab fest for uh, international elites who like to walk around and pretend they can impose all sorts of hardship on everyone else. The mere fact that it's done in a country like uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, was uh, classic. And of course, we know that Sultan Al Jabbar had made uh, some really strong comments at the beginning, saying 
the science about getting rid of oil is just isn't there. And uh, unless we want to live in, this, in caves, uh, we'd better start to really think about what we're asking for here. So is the Alberta Premier then doing the same thing that Scott Moe was by taking the message to uh, to this summit? I think the message that the Premier of Alberta was been very similar. But, you know, this all depends on the federal government uh, making good on its commitment that if you're going to make an investment in carbon uh, carbon capture and underground storage, I call it sequestration, which is a lot easier than you know, trying to come in with some trendy terms. Um, you know, you're going to have to get the federal government to pony up and to make sure that if we make those investments, that there's a tax consideration. Because God knows we give tax considerations for electric vehicles, most of which, most of which are built in China with some of the greatest environmental standards in the world. Not. And so <laughs> while you're paying for these uh, wonderful uh, you know, renewables and green widgets, you know that they're being made, produced and being produced and be, being realized around the world because they're done with products made with coal. That's, of course, the irony of so-called green energy, is that there's nothing green about them. But I think for Danielle Smith, it's, uh, it's, it's a willingness to simply say, I'm not taking this anymore. Previous premiers might have done that. Uh, the oil companies might have tried to pay, play footsies with things like the uh, you know, uh, Pathways Alliance and trying to appease. But you know what? I think people realize, including guys like myself who have no interest in the oil industry, they don't like me, I don't like them, uh, never have. But they're uh, you know, going along, uh, getting along to go along doesn't work anymore. Because at the end of the day, the fanatics pushing the climate agenda, and I mean the real ones that say bury it in the ground, uh, don't want fossil fuels at all. And I think that's important that uh, countries and companies that represent hydrocarbons, in other words, the prosperity and the ability to support the civilization that we expect and and demand, finally stood up and said, enough of this nonsense. We're pushing back. You better have your facts straight and you better be able to tell it to our faces rather than holding these little, you know, cool uh, organizational meetings taking in hundreds of thousands of people around the world who I'm sure either flew or swam their way to uh, to Dubai. Uh, it's pretty obvious that the tones change here. And it's not like people are denying, you know, things here, which is if you don't pick it our way, uh, then you're, you're a denier. But people are certainly looking for solutions that work as opposed to just uh, – uh, poppycock per se. Are we seeing more of those alternate views? Did we this year at COP twenty eight, and and that's why we're seeing more of this representation. Like you know, we're all heading in the same direction, but you may be. Or we're all heading for the same goal, but you might be going in the right in the wrong direction. You know, I think it's a question of balance, and we haven't seen that. It's been uniquely one sided. Yeah. It's about hey, we can do all these things, and too bad, so sad. You're going to like it, like it or not. Um, I think now we're looking at uh, reality, uh, affordability, uh, you know, the cause for, you know, preserving humanity and, and civilization has a counterweight to it. It's not just about, you know, worrying about one particular molecule, CO2. It's worrying about the fact that in order to achieve this, you may be, you may be basically suggesting that uh, civilization itself has to come to an end or change dramatically in order to, uh, to achieve something which for the past 20 or 30 years hasn't really happened. And by the way, I'm no stranger to this. I helped run a campaign for a guy named Morris Strong, the granddaddy of all this. Morris has now passed away, of course. Uh, but, you know, we've been talking about cataclysmic ends and catastrophe uh, for quite some time. And yet we may have seen some change in climate weather. Uh, but let's not get ourselves, you know, tied into a pretzels over this. Let's make sure that we, we do it in a balanced in a way that's rational, reasonable, and uh, really uh, respects the laws, not only of physics, but of reality around us. 
Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says his province is home to sustainable oil and putting out a call to bring more attention to that. Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's good to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we're going to get Dave Woodard in here to talk about him running around in a Santa Claus suit because that's worth the price of admission right there. But first, uh, Dave did a very cool feature on Christmas trees. We talked about this last week if you're thinking about getting a real one. I understand last week was probably the big weekend, but obviously right up until Christmas. So this is Dave Woodard and talking about Christmas trees, the expense and shortages and all that sort of stuff. Here, listen. There's nothing quite like going out to a Christmas tree lot to bring out the festiveness of the season. Looks great. Little full. Lot of sap. But depending where you go, you may encounter a real shortage of stock, and the ones that are there are quite expensive. Son of a nutcracker! Shirley Brennan is the executive director of the Canadian Christmas Trees Association and says that it may seem like there are fewer trees, but it really depends on where you go and what you're looking for. We are certainly knowing that Fraser firs, uh, for, for that ex- an example of a species that maybe there isn't as many of those, um, and that is because of demand. Uh, it is it is harder to grow a Fraser fir, um, and it takes a lot longer to grow a Fraser fir, and not all soils can grow a Fraser fir. So because of that demand, instead of hearing, oh, Christmas tree while out searching, dad could be hearing this instead. Shirley Brennan says yes, from her perspective, the costs have gone up. Across Ontario and across Canada, on average, the prices have gone up about 5%, and that is solely from the uh, farm and growers perspective of the cost of, of running a, a farm. And that's just on the farm end, where Brennan says the cost of things like fertilizer have shot up 50%. Tree lots also have their own costs, like keeping the lights on and renting the space. But Brennan says it's not all bad. If you're not finicky about the kind of tree you get, there are options. But there are other species. I know that if if a lot is looking for fir trees, the the growers have different uh, different types of fir trees that they you know are offsetting those Fraser firs with. But what about moving forward? We hear every year about forest fires across the country. In fact, 2023 was a record year for forest fires. Brennan admits that climate change can be an issue, but farmers are learning to try to maximize their farms. Christmas tree farmers can plant their trees in the spring and they can plant in the fall. And in in the past, we've seen where they have been very set in their planting. No, we this farm might always plant in the spring and somebody else might say, no, we only plant in the fall. Um, and now we're seeing where they may be planting um, both, uh, both seasons, a little bit in both seasons, so that those roots get a chance to, to take before they have to deal with the extreme. And of course, as new tree farmers come on board year after year, they're learning to expand their portfolios. The younger generation doesn't just want me to come to their farm once um, in a year. So how can I utilize my farm and my acreage to attract you to come more than once? So, um, and keep in mind that they're not getting paid for those trees for 10 to, to 14 years. 
So we're seeing where they're going into um, pumpkins or they're going into lavender or they're going into wellness retreats. So it's that agritourism. And that's where I think you're going to see our industry um, head in that direction. So it appears as though the Christmas tree farm industry is not only alive and well, but it's changing with the times. So if you're used to having that giant Fraser fir in the family room, but can't get your hands on one this year, take a lesson from the farmers and diversify. I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. Dave Woodard, 900 CHML News. Dave Woodard with us now. Dave, do you have a real tree? Are you a real tree guy? I am not. I have. I a can't fake, believe you I did know. that. I can't believe you did that. I'm thinking that well, he's done this story on real trees because he's got a real passion <laughs> for the smell of a real tree in the house, and you're not. You're an artificial guy. I'm an artificial guy. I'm sorry. I I, I like the idea of not having to go out when I'm already busy during a busy yeah. time of the year and. Yeah, so I, I I have I have family and friends who love it that can't do anything but a real tree, but um yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm surprised. So uh, do any of these people that you talk to know that you have a fake tree? No, I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I uh, it's it's part of the uh, uh you know, being a journalist. That's right, you're right? being neutral. Yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. You're being objective. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh you know, there used to be a shortage of this and I heard that for years and years, yeah. but it sounds like this is really coming back around as more and more people A are getting into it, understanding it, and also the from the customer side, people obviously the demand's increasing. It does seem to be growing. No pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. As you heard Shirley Brennan in that report, too, she was saying, you know, back during the pandemic, there was a real kind of crush for anything authentic, right? And and yeah. so that that desire of having a real tree is, has stuck around. All right. Uh, talking about authentic, uh, how mm. do you get 900 Santa Clauses running at once? And where do all the Santa Claus suits come from? <laughs> uh, that first question is a good, a good one. Uh, we had a run. So in Hamilton this past weekend, there was a Santa 5K. Uh, you could also run the 10K, but it was a 5K for me and, and 900 other Santas. Um, and it was uh, essentially a fundraiser for mission services uh, put on by the uh, OMA. Uh, so essentially, it's, you know, it, we all got together. Uh, you know, you buy your suit when you sign up for the, the race itself it's you know just oh part it of the comes cost. with a yeah. suit yeah oh, i mean don't well, get me wrong perfect. don't get me wrong some people had their own suits there <laughs> yeah. were some but uh mostly... it's like it's it's like a tuxedo you buy it and then you have to run every year that's yes exactly actually talking to ken mann who has run a santa race in the past he says that he'll enjoys going out and running in the neighborhood during this time of year to, to put a smile on people's faces i haven't done that yet but the... maybe this year in the Santa Claus suit. Yeah, exactly. And he, and he wonders why the canines are all chasing him <laughs> around the neighborhood. Uh, there you go. All right, Dave Woodard, anchor with CHML. Great stuff. Thanks, Dave. Hey, thank you. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly know the controversy surrounding the Red Hill and the report that has come out in regard to a friction report, uh, which came out a few years ago and then was uh, pretty much shelved 
at the city and, and nobody really saw it. And uh, obviously now with uh, the inquiry and such uh, in, uh, that information would have been valuable and could have saved lives. How do we make sure none of this happens in the future? And really at the end of it, it's, it's we're looking at a report uh, that talks about another report that nobody saw. So how do we make sure everyone sees these, this one and we learn from it? Let's bring in Carlisle Khan, General Manager, Public Works, and here now. Carlisle, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. So obviously, Carlisle, this is uh, an incredible look inward at the city and, and how things are going. What would you say is, has been the, the biggest learning moment here from all of this? Uh, thanks for this question, Scott. I think the the biggest learning moment is, is really receiving the report and everything that we've done to date to to be better. We're thankful to receive this report. Um, there's a number of recommendations, 36 in all, that are within the report. A few of them we've already started. Others we're going to look deeper in and come back with action plan to council and, and make sure that we are transparent and we hold ourselves accountable to make sure that these recommendations are carefully studied and, and reviewed and then also implemented in terms of a path forward. Uh, we hear the word silos a lot uh, over the uh, the course of time. It seems that's the situation here, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Is that accurate? So once again, I think it's it reflects, the commissioner's re- report reflects uh, a point in time. I know that my time here at the city, I, I work very closely with other members of SLT and including within Public Works, each of the directors, they work together. And we like to think that we're building a high-functioning team. So we're breaking down those silos. We're, we're getting to better decision-making, decision-making that's not in isolation. I'm a big believer that the, the team will always outperform the individual. So to speak to that, I think that there's definitely a, a change there. The commissioner spoke to some recommendations around leadership, education, collaboration, cooperation, transparency, and accountability. These are not just words. These are values that we have as we move forward um, in our organization. And when we look and reflect on the recommendations of the report, we, we, we hold this up and, and make sure that we're, we're meeting the intent of the recommendations. How can the public, and I know, Carlisle, these are, I'm asking you questions you can't answer that are, that are very difficult too, but how can the public feel comfortable that actual change will happen? Because, again, it's another report about another report about another report. Um, how can the public, or what's the message to the public about feeling confident that uh, that everybody is working together? I think to answer that question, Scott, we look to council, the mayor and members of council, they are holding us accountable, more specifically, the senior leadership within the city. I think our approach of looking at all 36 recommendations, developing an action plan, reporting back on or before March uh, 31st, 2024 is is appropriate. That way we're, we're being transparent, but we're also saying, here's what the work plan looks like, and this is when we're going to hit those anticipated milestones. Some of them may be already done. Some of them may take a little bit longer. Some of them may require additional resources. But through that reporting back mechanism and that transparency mechanism, uh, members of council will be holding us accountable, and, and, and we welcome that.
Carlisle, how do you balance this with getting something done, uh, you know, in, in an expedited fashion? Like, are you concerned that this will delay things more, will delay projects? Well, uh, you know, how do we just make sure it's done and it's done right without having to wade through more red tape and such? I, I think from our perspective, nothing here is, is what we would consider red tape. Public safety and public trust is paramount. So everything that we do today and as we go forward has to enhance that and 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 doing it in a transparent open manner will lend itself to those type of things the work that we do we prioritize we we, we base on public safety if, it, if there's an issue out there we will address it immediately uh things that are probably let's call them life cycle they, they can be pushed off to a little bit later date but if it's around public safety public trust and getting the job done we are on it uh, when you look at the atmosphere and how this happened and what the atmosphere is now, do you get the feeling that has changed? Because a lot of people are having a hard time understanding how this could even happen. Yeah, that, that's a fair question. And um, I think definitely the atmosphere has changed. I think, you know, the commissioner's findings, when you look at it, he also noted that from the time that the report was identified, and I think that was around the 2018 timeframe, there was no notice of wrongdoing or misconduct identified. He thought that staff dealt with the matter as exponentially as they could. They brought it forward. It became very transparent. And then uh, council, uh, they decided to call an inquiry and that led to kind of this process. So we looked at a number of documents. I think the inquiry itself looked at over 130,000 documents. And, and, you know, coming out of that was there was no notice of wrongdoing or there was no finding, sorry, of wrongdoing uh, to the staff that are here. So um, it, it would be inaccurate to say uh, this was one person who had too much power who and there just wasn't enough checks and balances in place to stop this from happening. I think in the report, the commissioner identifies that um, head on and, and really the fact that he didn't share a copy. This is the uh, previous director of engineering services did not share a copy. He identified that as, you know, could have done better. There, there was a wrongdoing there. Today, when we receive reports, we, we make sure that it's logged. We make sure every division, every department has access to those reports. We look at what the findings and recommendations are, and then collectively we put our minds together and say, okay, is there something here that we need to address immediately? In this scenario, I think back in 2013 or 2014, when uh, the former director had his hands on it. I, I think he he looked at it and he said, you know what, um, I don't agree with it. And, and that was the end of that. So um, we, we've come a long way, without a doubt. Uh, is there any more further in investigation on this or is this pretty much it? Or, you know, has the question of why this happened been answered? I, I believe the question of why it's happened um, has been answered. I believe it's all around high functioning teams being more transparent and being more open. Those are things that we are instilling in our culture and our workforce today, and we will continue to do that. I think it's now a matter of us taking the recommendations and the findings, making sure, sure that it becomes part of our what I would call our cultural fabric as we move forward, and that we hold each other accountable. I think uh, with that openness and transparency, then uh, not only myself will hold my peers accountable, but others will hold me accountable. And I think that is will that, lead to better outcomes. Is that culture difficult to change, Carlisle? I think any cultural shift is, is difficult to change, but I think when you have the right people with the right motivation and with the right attitudes behind it, it becomes a little bit easier, Scott.
Carlisle Kong with us, General Manager of Public Works. Red Hill Report is in. What has been learned from it? Carlisle, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Likewise. Thank you. A Ukrainian President Zelensky returning to Washington to try to drum up more support for his ongoing battle uh, trying to get Russia out of his country. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy Political Analyst with CNN and with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself? So far, so good. Brian, has the whole conflict, the Israeli-Hamas conflict, uh, uh, sort of sucked all the air out of the room and taken the tension away from Ukraine? Uh, no. <laughs> there's um, There's been a, enough uh, air in the room for both. And unfortunately, mm. there's it's... You know, it's a very complex, very nuanced situation. Uh, John Kirby briefed us uh, on Air Force One today on the president's trip up to uh, Pennsylvania about uh, President Zelensky coming to town um, and at the same time uh, was asked about uh, the expanding conflict in the Middle East. And this is going to these two conflicts are going to take up at least in through at least through Christmas and probably into the new year, all the conversation going on in the White House. So uh, is there thoughts of Republicans pulling back on support for Ukraine? I mean, where is that conversation going? Well, that's uh, Zelensky will be in town uh, tomorrow. He's meeting with the president. Uh, as Kirby told us today, he's also going to meet with congressional leaders. There's been some um, movement among the GOP. There's an understanding that if you, especially in the Senate with Mitch McConnell, that if you back off uh, helping out Ukraine, that it's bad for the United States. Or as McConnell has said, you know, uh, we're not fighting. They are. And they're uh, they're taking out our our closest competitor. So what's to complain about? So all we have to do is spend the money is his um, is his reasoning. But the, in the House, they want to tie this into a, a southern border safety and unrealistic demands that just can't be met. There's no way you can secure this, there's no way you can can secure any border, much less the U.S. southern border with 1,950 miles of wall. It's just not going to happen. So uh, with politics being the art of compromise, when Zelensky comes to town, I'm sure he's going to meet with the House leaders and try to find a reasonable solution or at least soften their their stance a little bit so that they can continue their fight against Russia because Russia is counting on not getting aid from the U.S. in order to roll over Ukraine. So uh, I was watching the Sunday morning shows on the weekend and and somebody was interviewing uh, being interviewed and brought up exactly what you just said. Uh, we can't continue to fight in Ukraine. We need to uh, instead make sure that our borders are secure. Uh, and I kind of shook my head thinking, are these even the same conversation? I mean, th- those are completely two different, uh, uh, completely different issues. Um, of course. Uh, are, are, are Americans drawing that same conclusion? I mean, you know, one's about an ongoing issue on the border that you've talked about just did uh, versus, you know, international security. Yeah, and uh, it's asinine, honestly, to link the two, um, and and it's mm. it's unrealistic. Look, the the border, the southern border of the United States, has been, if you want to call it a crisis, it's been one that's been going on for forty five years, yeah. and it was as far back as Ronald Reagan who said we need to have a pathway to for citizenship, and now it's turned into. We don't want anybody in our country type of thing. And I always go, well, if if we don't, if our borders didn't allow for immigration, um, where would you be? 
you, you certainly wouldn't yeah, be here yeah. because other than uh, Native Americans, there was no one here until we we came in unfettered. So it it's kind of like I said, it's an asinine thing. And the other idea of you know, of, you know building a 1950 mile border wall is just silly because. Parts of uh, the southern U.S., particularly in the Big Bend area of Texas, is much like the Grand Canyon. You can't wall it off, and you can climb over a wall and go under a wall. I've stood, done stand-ups for television in uh, tunnels underneath the Mexican border years ago that were as wide as two lanes of road, had railway in it, and they were pushing drugs and people through it. So mm. you can mm. drill under a wall, you can go over a wall, and guess what? You can go around one. So, you know, that's it's just... That's so silly to link the two, and it ignores the very serious issue of international security and our role in the the U.S.'s role in uh, the international world. And it's uh, that's doomed to fail. It's just how do you get the uh, Republicans there to save face, and that's that's the nuance. Do Americans still realize that, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, the world would be a way different place? And say what you want about the great old United States of America, but, you know, you're the ones that are leading all of this and keeping the world from going into complete hell and have been over the last couple of wars. Are Americans, do they realize that? I, a majority of Americans do. You have the isolationist theory in the U.S., which goes back to almost World War II. We, we, whatever goes on in the world, we don't want to be a part of. Well, I'm sorry, but we are a part of it. The world is so linked and so interconnected. You can't retreat behind a wall or hide in a closet or stick your head in the ground and pretend like we don't have an influence or an importance or something to say about the world. And if we don't stand up for freedom and, and security and democracy with, with as much firepower and um, and, and as much influence as we have, then you're abandoning democracy. You are abandoning the free world. So that's the problem. But there are millions of people in the United States who continue to believe that the best thing to do is to hide. And I don't agree with it. And a majority of Americans don't. Will Zelensky make gains this week? What does he need to do? I think he will. Uh, he's a very personal uh, uh, guy. And uh, when he was last here, he, you know, he was, uh, I remember him very well taking questions from the press or at least a few, and which is, you know, interesting uh, that he would. So I'm sure he's going to be sitting in closed door meetings with members of Congress and will be making an attempt to, uh, to get that money sent to him and to get them to vote for it. There's no way that we're going to abandon our, you know, the president said today and Kirby said today, there's no way we're going to abandon Ukraine. We simply can't. Um, so that's I mean, that was the the gist of what he said today on Air Force One. Um, and that's, I, I believe that that's probably ac- an accurate statement. Flying around with uh, all those in the know, Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN. Always engaging, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. Hey, stay out of the cold. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. 
certainly know the debate in Hamilton over one-way streets uh, put in a long time ago in order to uh, move workers in and out of the industrial core in a quick and efficient way. Uh, many questioning whether that is uh, even needed now, uh, as these uh, uh, roads have, have obviously doing the job that they're doing about getting people in and out have uh, become, become uh, very quick and in some ways dangerous to pedestrians in and around these roads. So uh, then there was chatter to two-way streets and that that was seen as a solution, uh, not only for generating traffic for local businesses and such, but also slowing it down and uh, helping making it safer for uh, pedestrians and such. But there's an interesting column in the Bay Observer. One-way street conversion has become a mantra rather than a practical solution. Let's bring in John Best, who, of course, is editor, uh, sorry, publisher of the Bay Observer and with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks, Scott. It was, well, well, let me ask you this, John. Why was uh, the conversion to one-way back to two-way seen as a solution? Was there enough study done on this as a way to correct the situation? Uh, yes, and, and I, I think there was some good work done on, on the two-way conversions, like John Street, James Street. Um, so I'm not an opponent of... Uh, you know, of, of converting uh, mm-hmm. one-way streets to two-way, but in the case of uh, Main Street, um, they they basically council basically passed a resolution saying we are going to convert it, and then sort of handed it off to staff and said figure out a way of making it work. Uh, in other words, they made the policy decision without any uh, staff uh, input. So. Uh, last week, staff came back and said, well, here's here's what it looks like. It's going to be $26 million, of which, to be fair, $10 million was uh, money that was set aside for repaving the road at some point anyway. Uh, but, it, you know, to me, it's kind of the cart before the horse. And, and with the added issue of the LRT, uh, probably going to create tremendous traffic disruption on King Street. Well, not probably. It definitely will. And these two things are kind of on the same timetable. It just seemed to me, if you want to slow down traffic, if the problem is uh, safety and maybe making the street a little more, uh, you know, pedestrian friendly, uh, what else can be done short of uh, a $26 million conversion? A lot of which has to do with um, uh, putting in duplicate sets of lights and and so on, which uh, surprised me that it was so expensive but uh, it just strikes me that we're we're sort of charging ahead with this with a lot of uncertainty around the impact of the LRT and are there other ways we can calm the traffic on Main Street beyond what has already been done the other the other quick point Scott is staff in their presentation when they presented the price tag they also made the point that you know since since you asked us to uh, make the street safer over the last year. They, they put in a bunch of measures uh, of traffic calming and no right turns on red and, and a whole bunch of things. And they've, they've reduced accidents by 42% in, in just a year. So mm. you'd think that maybe a little more of that, you might uh, make the, the road significantly safer without uh, getting into this uh, two-way conversion. Uh, and again, this isn't one extreme or the other. This is a, a combination of both. Do you think that this has turned into a one size fits all? In other words, if we get, you know, we need to get rid of these two way streets, so we might as well get rid of all of them. 
or sorry, one way street. So we yeah, might as well get rid of all I of do, them. I do think that to some extent, because when when staff uh, submitted uh, the, the the proposal on the main street conversion, they also threw in uh, considerations about changing a whole bunch of other streets from one way to two way. And, and again, my point is not an opposition to uh, converting mm-hmm. streets back to two-way. It's just this street at this time at this cost. Uh, I just wonder if, if we're not sort of being ideological about um, converting Main Street and, and not really looking at uh, let, let's solve the problem that's there. And, and uh, certainly the, my main concern is I, I just think doing this at almost the same timetable as the King Street LRT, that we're going to have traffic chaos that we really haven't thought our way through. Uh, Do you think this is going to create more problems in a post-LRT situation? In other words, we get this done and then we realize, well, we maybe needed to do these two or three, but not this one. Well, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I mean, when I look at, you know, the LRT route, there's, there's parts of it where it's running through four lane uh, streets where obviously some kind of two-way traffic is possible. But when you get to that stretch between uh, Wellington and, and the downtown, the LRT is going to essentially take up the entire street. And and so uh, the idea of being able to go from on one end of King Street to the other in a car, I think is just about dead. So where are those cars going? I, I suppose they'll go to streets like Cannon Street or maybe Hunter but uh, it's just I, I've yet to see anybody sort of say, here's what traffic will look like when it's all said and done. And and I'm not a traffic engineer, but neither are these councillors uh, who voted to make the change without really the benefit of any information. So um, I, I just think we may be moving too quickly with this Main Street conversion. I've done lots of reading of when this all started way back when, and there was just as much debate and discussion when they were made into one-way streets. Do you think as much attention is being paid to that now as it was then? Um, you know, we're so concerned about safety, and of course we should be. Absolutely, it should be paramount, but we're so, we're so stuck on one solution, we're not looking at everything. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I mean, there, there's more ways of converting, uh, making a street safer uh, uh, than than conversion to two way streets, and and we've seen some of the conversions. Some people still scratch their heads when they drive along uh, through the Duran neighborhood where there's parking in the middle of the street. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I've had many people ask me, "What the heck is that?" So I, I think you know, it, just because something is a good idea in one area and and certainly, the you know, the conversion of uh, James Street and John Street uh, has been done, I think, without any difficulty whatsoever. And it's and it I think it's contributed greatly to the, um, you know, the the North End becoming North James becoming an attraction. So uh, this isn't me being, you know, sort of insisting on leaving the status quo the way it is. But mm-hmm. uh, this this is a major, major move. Um, staff were asked, why do we have, uh, even with this conversion, there's only going to be one lane going west. And, and staff were asked why, and they said, well, you've got a ramp off the 403 yeah. delivering traffic onto Main Street, and you've got all the traffic coming in from Westdale, and we think this is the way you have to do it. And, you know, they got some pushback on that. But to me, it's, it's just uh, too early, not enough data, 
and uh, too much danger of it getting tangled into the LRT mess as well. John Bass with us, publisher of the Bay Observer. His latest one-way street conversion has become a mantra rather than a practical solution. John, interesting read. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. All right, we have talked about today uh, the federal dental plan. Uh, NDP Jagmeet Singh taking a bow over this, and uh, a lot of politicians out there talking about how everyone deserves dental care and how great dental care is a essential part of living a healthy life. And of course, uh, everybody deserves that. And I don't think you would get anybody in the country who would disagree with any of that, uh, which is what they say when they are selling this. But I don't believe that is in any way a debatable point or even one that we're questioning. The question is, is this the most efficient way? Is this the best way to deliver it? Or is it anything that gets people into dental chairs uh, is good enough. Let's bring in Dr. Brock Nicolucci, President Spokesperson for the Ontario Dental Association, and here now. Brock, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Glad to be here, and I am. Uh, Brock, again, um, you know, similar to what I said when we were opening up this segment, uh, you know, I think everybody agrees that this is something that is needed and, you know, everybody deserves to have great dental care. It's a part of, of, of being healthy and such. We certainly know the importance of that. But is this the best way to administer it? I mean, how, how do you look at this uh, from, a, from a dental association uh, point of view? And, you know, I couldn't agree more with your statement. That's, but the problem is, is how is it going to be delivered? How do we protect yeah. those that have access already to the first class dental care system that we are used to here in Canada? And that's really the details that we need. You know, how do we make it easy for patients to register for the plan as well as the dentist so people can go to the dentist of their choice? I mean, there's so many questions that we have and we've raised and having the federal government realize all these problems that could occur, only coming to us at the 11th hour, that was a problem too. But they have sat down with us, and so today's announcement was encouraging, but there's a long road ahead of us. Uh, Does this create more issues than it resolves? If it's done correctly, no. I mean, there is a group of people out there that really need this, and that's why the provinces and the territories have come together with all these concerns, and we're actually standing united on this. And we're happy that the federal government has realized this. It's just unfortunate it's come at the 11th hour. Um, I, I've talked to various dental associations where it's nationally or provincially. And, you know, even as, as much as a couple of years ago, um, again, most associations will say anything to get somebody in a chair is what we're looking for. That's obviously uh, job number one. But I have had some say that there are programs like this in place they are just not properly funded. So rather than create a new system and a new set of bureaucracy, should we be addressing it through the provinces? And do they not know the best way to go about doing this? So that's one of our concerns is how do these align with the provincial programs? What the federal government has done, though, is indicated there's people that's falling through these cracks. So currently the provincial programs in Ontario are a big problem. And the provincial government has realized this through our messaging and is sitting down with us to try and fix them. But let's go back to the Seniors Dental Care Plan. It was unroll, it was rolled out without the consultation of the Ontario Dental Association. And this is, this, is the, this is the concern we have to the federal plan. People were having to drive up to two hours. And then when they get there, sometimes they had a two-year wait list just to get treatment done. 
So this is the problem is that why are we going to roll out a program that has all these barriers or problems associated with it? So we're trying to get let the federal government know all these concerns so they can get it right the first time. Uh, we went through a global pandemic, and we all said that we were going to fix our ailing health care system that we all value so much and we all thought was so uh, uh, superior to others and such. The pandemic also obviously exposed weak links in the health care system. Are you concerned that we're following a dental plan along the same template as the health care system and therefore will lead to the same problems that are encountered in the health care system? Well, I hope we don't go down that same road. Here we have acts, we have the world's best doctors, nurses, healthcare practitioners. I mean, we have a phenomenal we have phenomenal people. The problem is the system's failing our our population. So, do we want to go down that with dentistry? No, and that's why it's so important that the federal government work with us so we can identify these problems and prevent it and keep a great system we have in place right now. Where does this go from here? And you said keep the great system we already have in place. So does this elude if we start down this route that eventually, it, it, like, is this designed to fill in the holes or is this designed to take over the system? Well, the way the federal government has come out is that this is a way to fill in the holes. So there is this group of population that has fallen through the cracks, and mm-hmm. we want to make sure that they are taken care of while sustaining our phenomenal dental care system that we have. So do you think this is about changing the whole system or, again, just about those crucial numbers? In other words, will this interfere in any of the private programs that we already see going on? That's one of our big concerns. What are they doing to ensure the private system is maintained? Because right now they've only allotted $13 billion over five years. Now, that does seem like a lot of money, but if you have people starting to drop their uh, private dental insurance or employer-based dental plans and jumping onto the federal plan, that number is going to balloon. And the question I have is who's going to be on the hook for that? Taxpayers? Do taxpayers feel that they can afford higher taxes now? Is that something they want? I have see, I have patients here that work hard for their dental insurance, and they're so proud of their dental insurance. They don't want a federal plan. So we hope that the federal government sits down with us and works with us to ensure that the third-party dental insurances are protected. Uh, when do you anticipate those uh, talks going on? Because it seems this is kind of being rolled out. They've started towards the seniors and such uh, already. Uh, when do you think they will consult with you? So we've already had a few meetings together. We are under a non-disclosure agreement, but we've been right. uh, assured that future meetings are in the near future. But again, why were the dentists not at the table from the beginning? That's the that's one of the questions that we failed to real failed to get a proper answer. You know, everybody talks about the stakeholders, the proper stakeholders have been consulted, yet the dentists came in at the eleventh hour. So, you know, the dentists are the ones who are going to be delivering this plan. So I think they should have been probably consulted a long time ago. What percentage of Canadians do not have access to to this care? Do we know? Sorry, to uh the to third party dental insurance or to this plan? Yeah, what what percentage of Canadians, Ontarians aren't getting dental care, I guess? So it's less than a third. It's approximately a third. But the two-thirds that enjoy the private dental insurance, and then you have people that actually pay out of pocket for their dental coverage, and then there's this group of people that we are trying to uh, assist. And it's approximately 9 million Canadians. Are you uh, hopeful that these consultations will happen before the rest of this continues to get implemented? Are you, are you uh, confident that you will be heard? 
I'm willing to try, and my counterparts at the other provinces and territories are willing to try too. Uh, if this program wants to succeed, it's going to have to have the help of the provincial and territory dental associations so we can have the dentist stand behind it. Dr. Brock Nicolucci with us, president and spokesperson for the Ontario Dental Association. As we're hearing more and more about a federal dental plan, they are weighing in. Brock, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great evening. You too. Uh, all right, there you have it, a dental plan, um, but not really asking the dentals, the people who perform the work, the dentists or the dental associations for their input on it, which seems like, uh, well, changing the healthcare system without asking the doctors or the nurses. Scott Rodley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm mulling over this whole dental uh, plan uh, talk that we've been through, uh, that it was announced today, and it looks like it's starting to move forward with uh, older people and such. And I remember talking about this long before the pandemic and whatever, and talking to dental associations, whether they're provincial or uh, federal or such. And, you know, their first comment is anything that gets anybody into a dentist chair, we're good with because, you know, everybody needs help uh, in some form. Everybody deserves that help in some form. Um, but, you know, I had many so associations say, well, on the other hand, we have the programs in place provincially. Uh, it's just there isn't enough money from the feds to fund all of this stuff. So. Uh, you know, I asked again the, the head of the Ontario Dental Association, uh, now the same sort of question. I mean, is, is this, you know, because the politicians stand up and they say, well, everybody deserves dental care. And then they stand up and they say, you know, uh, uh, it, it leads to a better health. And like, nobody's debating that. And yet anytime you ask them to explain it, they go into the, you know, what it's good. And we, we all know. You know, good dental care is is certainly worth it. That's not the point. It's is this the most effective and efficient way to deliver it? And I'm not convinced the dental associations, although they're sort of somewhat jumping on board, that they're saying it. And then the the head of the Ontario Dental Association said we weren't even consulted on this. So how can you come up with a dental plan? When you don't even talk to the dentist, that's like fixing the health care plan without talking to the doctors or nurses. Okay, Scott. It's so, insane. So the answer to the question, and I don't want to be overly cynical, but I probably will be, is what were the criteria for the NDP to continue propping up this liberal government? We yeah, will have dental care. Yeah. We will have a dental care plan. Did it say that it was going to be a dental care plan that was cost effective or that was going to work as well as it could or anything yeah. else? No, we simply need to have a dental care plan in place. And quite frankly, um, we have seen no evidence in the last eight years that the party that is in power right now is all that concerned with what amount of money is spent to get something done. They, there just is not a concern. I'm sorry if that sounds partisan. I don't think the, the deficits that we are running as a country, even after COVID, COVID is a whole different thing. All right, let's leave that one out. All the other years, they've been outrageously high compared to everything else we've had before. I don't think there's any concern, any real concern with how much stuff costs we needed to have, we, 
The Liberal Party, in order to stay in power, needed to have support from the NDP. The NDP decided the only way you were going to have our support is with a dental plan. Yeah. Boom, dental plan. Will it? Will it? Will we find out in two or three years that we're spending billions of dollars extra when the when the government offices, the the budget office, the old government, uh, the Parliament budget office comes in and looks at? It? Will we find out that we've spent billions of dollars more than we needed to? Of course we will. Of course, we, I, 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 would, I would put money down on that right now and I don't gamble. I would put money down on it right now that the first time the parliamentary budget office looks at this thing, it'll say billions of dollars extra are being squandered on this. But that doesn't matter because this is about propping up a government. And when you get asked questions, and I'm just watching Mark Holland answer questions a, a little earlier, it's whenever anybody asks a question to justify this, or ask the concerns that you've just expressed. It's well, like everybody deserves dental care. You know, if you got a good teeth and this contributes to a better health, well, we're not talking about that. And I've, I've just had too many dental associations say this isn't the way to do it. it it's like it's a you know great if you want to blow all the money and get an extra person in the chair, but it's not the the, the best way to spend money. And then when you find out that they haven't even been consulted on this. It's like, again, it's like trying to fix healthcare without meeting with the doctors. But there is a rush, Scott, because it's, as I recall, was yeah. December 31st, not the deadline the NDP had put in place to get the dental care plan going? Was that dental care or pharmacare? Well, and again, they've already pushed off pharmacare and saying, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, again, it, it's, it, nobody argues about getting the people help. It's just, is this the best way to do it? And, and, and it all seems that now, as you said, with a rush and, and the liberals, you know, just plummeting, crashing in the polls, they're just making announcement after announcement after announcement. And, and get and, ready. And, and get no, ready, Scott. And nobody's, nobody's been consulted. And brace yourself because one thing we know about every government, doesn't matter what stripe they are. So this is not, this part is not partisan. It doesn't matter what stripe they are. When an election is coming up, the party in power buys votes by giving goodies to everybody. You yeah. think that we're seeing spending now. Wait till the announcement yeah. comes that an election is coming. And I believe they're actually going to fly Apache helicopters over every Canadian city, just dropping bags <laughs> of money onto every house and saying, you know, brought to you courtesy of your local government. I mean, it's, it's crazy. We will be seeing spending like we have never, ever, ever, ever seen prior to whenever the next election is. And it's going to be, and, and, and then, and here's the real problem. Um, barring some kind of absolute miracle, the liberals will not win again. And then whoever takes power, looking like the conservatives, are going yeah, to have yeah, an yeah. absolute pile of steaming yak dung to try and yeah. wade through to make anything yeah. happen. Because yeah. the one thing we know, once you give something to the public, they never want it to be taken away. Yeah. Anytime yeah. you say, we got to take it back, it's, it's, well, people are going to die. So now you're in a spot where, well, you know what? Look, we were the, we were the fun Santa Clauses who gave yeah. all the money. You're the mean Grinches. And that's always it is. The left runs up the credit card, the right tries to pay it back down again. It just goes around and around and around. Once we get All tired right. of the one, then can we bring the other in to fix it or give more and then we spin it back the other way? And yeah, you're right. It's a cycle. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the six o'clock news. Enjoy. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So we know Dave Woodard was 
there as a Santa Claus, but there was 900 of them. How do we know that the entirety of the CHML team wasn't there too as Santa Claus? 